get this thing started. We're going to be in Psalm 28 tonight. Can you uh, advance that first one there for me? There we go. Okay, I got it now. Thanks. Psalm number 28. Let me begin with the word of prayer and then we'll look at the text together. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ and we're thankful for this promise that at his name every knee in heaven above and on earth below um, and under the earth will will bow and will honor Him whether willingly like we will or unwillingly like godless people and, and Satan and the demons will. They will be compelled to acknowledge that Jesus in fact is Lord, that He is the Christ, that He is the Son of God and uh, we are thankful that You have made it known to us that the great gospel that we love, and we pray that the result would be um, that our lives are are um, an alleluia to you, and glad uh, lives that are are filled with glad submission to your word. And we pray that you'd help us to better be able to understand how to respond to and to think about our enemies tonight as we look at Psalm 28. Pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this 28. 28th Psalm is another example of a lament psalm. And as I've mentioned before, a lament psalm is where the the psalmist mourns or grieves over a certain situation, uh, specifically here about the advancement of the wicked, but then he turns, they always turn from mourning to trust, um, from grief to confidence in God. And that's what David does here. David's the author here. And he begins with a, a cry for help and then expresses confidence in God and, um, and moves to, to praise and thanksgiving. So where is a person like you and me supposed to turn when, when we are opposed by the wicked? Are we resigned to despair and depression and thoughts of giving up? Or is there some way that we can rise up above the opposition and have victory and joy and hope? And here, David helps us to know how to respond to such a situation when our enemies are advancing or when they have the the upper hand. When our enemies are very real and our discouragement is rising like a crashing wave against a rock, against the rock of our soul, where do we turn in times like this? Learn from... The Holy Spirit here as he speaks through David. Let's read uh, the text together. I'll begin in verse 1 of Psalm number 28. This is the word of God. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me, for if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors, while evil is in their hearts. Requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to their deeds, 
the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of His hands. He will tear them down and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord because He has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and I am helped. Therefore my heart exalts and with my song I shall thank Him. The Lord is their strength and He is a saving defense to His anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. Here in Psalm 28, we see that when the wicked are sealing their own fate, that is, they have determined what ends they want. They, they are happy with, with rejecting God and receiving His condemnation. When the wicked are sealing their own fate, believers can confidently pray to God for protection from the same destiny. In other words, we don't want to be lumped into that same kind of fate as the wicked have. And David's going to give reasons why he thinks that should be the case. Uh, for him, and I think by implication we can learn from that. So three, three main points I think that we find in this text. First, believers depend on God to rescue them from the same judgment as the wicked. Second, believers trust that God will favorably respond and then praise Him for His grace. And then third, believers pray for continued blessing. So first, believers depend on God to rescue them from the same judgment as the wicked, verses 1-5. through five. Here, David starts, as he often does, the psalmists really uh, follow a very similar pattern throughout the psalms, and that is they just cry out for help. This is the kind of prayer that you make when, when you sense that the trouble is near, it's imminent, it's, it's on top of you, and, and you know the trouble's there, and, and it just cry, it's just a, almost an impulse kind of cry, like, God, please help me. That's what David's saying here. To you, O Lord, I call. He doesn't explain all that's happening here. He's going to do that. He's going to take some time, settle down a little bit, explain what kind of wicked things are going to happen really in general terms. But, but this is the, the initial prayer for help. The initial prayer for help. And what David knows about these wicked people who are causing him trouble is that they have the fate of of God's wrath. You see at the end of verse 1, I will become like those, for if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Pit's just another metaphor for death or or really death without hope. We we are are not going to die without hope. The wicked will. That's what he's saying. I don't want to die like the wicked. I don't want to go down to the pit like they do. And so he cries out to God, God, to you I call. I'm calling out to you to rescue me from that same destiny because, notice what he says, if, if you are deaf to me and you are silent to me, those are the two things. He, he kind of couples them together. They're actually not the same thing. To be deaf means, obviously, that God's not listening. To be silent means God's not talking. But he couples them together as if they're the same. He says, if you're deaf to me, uh, he says, don't be deaf to me, for if you're silent, we would expect him to say, don't be deaf to me, for if you're deaf to me. In other words, if you don't listen to me, then, then I'm going to have trouble. But he's saying, uh, don't, be, don't uh, avoid what I'm, uh, what I'm saying. Don't avoid what, my voice to you, my call for help. And then, and then he says, because if you don't speak to me, then I will be in trouble. 
I will go down to death without hope. Now, I hope you recognize that God can never be and never is literally deaf to the sound of anyone's voice. That's not what he's saying. Okay, God always knows what's going on. He always hears uh, the prayers of his people in a general sense. But what David's saying is, don't be deaf to me in the sense of, of turning your favor away from me. Look at chapter or, or Psalm number 27, verse 9. 27, verse 9. Do not hide your face from me. So it's not as if God can't see. The idea is don't hide your face from me in the sense that you don't pour out your favor on me. That's what he's saying here in Psalm 28. He's saying, don't be deaf to me in the sense that you turn, turn your favor away from me, that you pour out this favor on me, that you turn a deaf ear. Like, he can still hear, but he's not responding. That's the idea. Don't be deaf to, to my cry for help as, as you are with the wicked. And so... In this verse, David ties this deafness of God and muteness of God together. And he understands that if God fails to listen to him, then, then God will fail to respond to him. And he can't imagine that happening. And I think it's helpful, like we did on Sunday night, at times, to consider what it might be like for God to be deaf or mute to us. On Sunday night, we were looking at 1 Samuel 15 or 16, where... Uh, what's 15? First Samuel 15, where Saul uh, showed what it looks like to be a spiritual failure. And one of the things that I said is that, that a spiritual failure, the last thing is spiritual failure is forgotten by God. That is that as God speaks and speaks, then eventually we stop listening and then God gives a famine of his voice. And I think at times it's good for us to consider what it might be like if God were to sp- stop speaking to us. Now you'd be thinking, well, you know, I have... I've got a dozen Bibles in my home, so how could God ever stop speaking because I could just sit down and read it? But but you recognize that these words on the page are not magical in any way. They don't guarantee that they will they will grip our hearts, right? The only reason that they grip our hearts is because of the Holy Spirit, and that's the point, that the Holy Spirit has to be the one to illumine us, not just that we understand the, the black letters on the white page, but that it, we understand the significance of it for our lives and what it means for service. And so David considers here in this situation as the wicked are winning what it might be like if God were deaf or mute to him. We come to his main request here in verses 2 and 3. He says, Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands towards your holy sanctuary, in other words, towards your dwelling place. So, so listen to me. Don't be deaf when I cry to you in your dwelling place. And what is it specifically that David wants God to hear? The answer is in verse 3. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity. This is why I say that, that the believers confidently trust in God that He will not give them the same fate as the wicked. Don't lump me in with the wicked. They are going where at the end of verse 1? They're going down to the grave, the pit, they're going to death without hope, so don't allow me to go there with them. And the, the point that David wants to make here in verse 3 is that they are deserving of what they are getting, right? They deserve going down to the pit without hope. Why? Because verse 3, notice how they're, they're described. They're described as wicked. They're described as those who work iniquity. They're described as flatterers. That is, they speak peace with their neighbors. They appear to be all, you know, everything's fine, you know. It's like the, the prophets talked about 
the, the, the prophets who the false prophets who would say peace, peace when there is no peace. This is what these wicked people are doing. And and they're also uh, at the last part of the verse there, they are evil hearted. Their hearts are full of evil. And David's saying, Listen, God, they are going down to the pit, and I know why they're going down to the pit. They deserve it. And so what I'm asking you is, is not to associate me with them. Because I am not like them in the way that they think. I'm not like them in the way that they act. And so I should not, God, in your justice, I should not be treated like them in the way that you judge them. And so David here, I think, is appealing to God's attribute of his justice. In other words, be just in how you deal with me. God, I am on your side. Not, you know, I've done enough good work so you have to see that and and do something. He's saying, God, you have selected me. I'm on your side. I have followed your commands. I'm not doing it my own way. I have a concern for your deeds, your works. And we're going to see in verse 5 that they don't. So David asked for protection from their fate, from the fate of the wicked. But he also prays that God would indeed judge the wicked, verses 4 and 5. He prays that, that God would, would judge the wicked. He, here he, he expresses his confidence that God will give the wicked what they deserve. In verse 3, he prayed for deliverance from the same judgment as they. In, in verse 4, he prays for their judgment. Now consider this when you think about the, the wicked, the evil people that you deal with that are attacking you. He prays for deliverance from the same fate as they. And then in verse 4, he prays for their judgment. He says, requite them. That is, give, give it to them. Give to them what they deserve. Requite them according to their work and according to their evil of their practices. Requite to them. Give to them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them for their recompense, for their dealings. So the basis of his prayer of judgment on them is for the evil of their practices, verse 4, the deeds of their hands, and what they deserve, their recompense. And so David is, is appealing to God to follow through on the promise that he has made. And, and we have the same promise, and that is that God will judge the proud. He will destroy the wicked. And so David's praying for that. God, here is a clear case where these people are wicked. So I'm praying that I don't follow their same fate and I'm praying that you would lead them to the fate that they deserve. This is a prayer of imprecation. That's the scholars call it imprecatory prayer. It's a prayer of judgment for the wicked. They are wicked. They do wickedness from their wicked hearts in a cloak of peace. And we could sum all of their wickedness up in verse 5. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the deeds of His hands. This wicked person or these wicked people operate from a secular worldview. A secular worldview, what I mean by that is a mindset that lives as if God doesn't exist. As if God is not the Creator. They live as if God will not bring judgment. You know, the 1 Peter 3 type of idea. You know, everything exists as it always has been, and so God must not be coming in judgment. If He were really going to judge us, then He would have done it by now, right? 
Nothing has changed. The world has always been as it, as it is now. If God were going to come in judgment, He would have done it. You know what Peter's response to that is? He did come in judgment once, didn't He? When was it? In the flood. God did destroy the earth with water. And this time He's coming with fire. So the earth has not always been as it once was. God is serious about sin and He will come in judgment on those who oppose Him. And these people live as if God is not the judge. They live as if God is not the Creator. That's why it says they don't regard the works of the Lord. Everything that they do comes from a mindset that ignores and opposes God. Notice the two things that these unbelievers disregard. The works of the Lord, first line there, or first, first main thought, and then the deeds of His hands. The works of the Lord and the deeds of His hands. That is, His providential rule and His sovereign creation. And Paul puts it this way. Yes, they may act like God doesn't exist. They may act like God's not the creator, like God's not the judge. But here's what he says in Romans 1. He says, Although they know God, they do not honor Him as God, neither are they thankful. Instead, they look around with their secular worldview glasses and try to ignore the big light in the sky. Right? That God is... And that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him and He's a judge of those who oppose Him. They, they try to ignore that big thing and then they, they pretend like they can go on living as they please. They look around at the world in their secular worldview glasses and say, you know, everything that is is a result of chance. It comes as a result of some lesser God that put it there. There's no ultimate being over us. We don't have to answer to anyone. And so Paul, I think, would disagree in Roman or would agree, I think, with David here that that these wicked people disregard God. They disregard his works, and they take all of their works and and, and they and, and the prayer here is that David's asking is take all of their works, the the works of the wicked, and bring them to justice. Second part of verse 5, here David prays for God to be like a wrecking ball. In other words, if they are like a building, God would be the wrecking ball to tear them down. He will tear them down and not build them up. Whatever they've worked to build up in opposition to you, God, tear it down. Lead them to their destiny. So, number one, believers depend on God to rescue them from the same judgment as the wicked. Secondly, Believers trust that God will favorably respond and then, as a result, praise Him for His grace. Now, notice the shift here that takes place. David is talking in the future. He's, saying, he, he's praying for what will happen. Would you, would you make this happen to the wicked? Would you protect me from their same fate? Okay, so that's talking about what will happen. And then, in verse 6, he says... Blessed be the Lord, or praise be to the Lord. Why? Because He, notice past tense, He has heard the voice of my supplication. And what we might think when looking at this, and this is a very likely possibility, is that, that David prayed the first part, verses 1 through 5, and then some time elapsed, and then he came back and prayed the second part after it was answered. But I think actually what's happening here, that's, that's a very likely possibility, and if you took that view, I, I don't think you would... Um, you know, be, be unorthodox there. Lots of scholars 
take that view. But there are other scholars, and, and I would agree with these other ones, that would say that, that prior to receiving an answer, David expects God to respond favorably to him. In other words, he's speaking as if God has already heard him. Have you ever done this yourself? That as you're praying for something, you're so confident that God has heard you that you speak as if God has heard you because He just did. Right? And God, would you take care of this situation? And then later on your prayer, thank you God for hearing me. Right? It, it may not be answered to the way that you want it at this point, but, but I think that's what David's doing here. He's so confident that God will favorably respond to him that he has heard his prayer. He knows that God is faithful, that he can speak as if uh, it's already happened. In other words, as you hear me pray, God, I know that you have heard me, that you are hearing me, and that you are responding. And that's why what I do right now, God, is I express my confidence in you even while this danger is still imminent. It's still here. It's still all around me. But I'm confident that you hear me and that you respond to me. So David has confidence in God's faithfulness and then he praises God for his faithfulness. In verses 7 and 8, the Lord is my strength is really another expression of David's confidence. And then here's here's his praise. My heart trusts in Him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts. And with my song, I shall thank Him. The Lord is their strength and He is a saving defense to His anointed. So, up until this point, really, verses 1-5, through the focus has been on the lament part. The the mourning, the sorrow, the grief over what's taking place. And now he transitions in verse 6 to petition. God, please do this. And, and I have confidence that you will and that you have started to work. And then he moves here to thanksgiving. David, here in verse 7, is confident in God's strength and protection, that he is his shield. And as a result, he knows that God will help him. That in the midst of trouble, with enemies all around, the means to confidence and praise is the focus on the attributes of God. And this is what we should do. That, that as you are being opposed by God's enemies, that, that the way that you find confidence is by remembering God's attributes. By remembering here that He is your strength and that He is your shield. And that's how we can come away praising God. Did you notice the contrast here in verse 5? The wicked do not regard the works of God the Lord, they do not regard the deeds of His hands. But what do the righteous do here in verse 7? The righteous regards God as His strength and shield. See, we live as if God doesn't exist. That is, the wicked do. The wicked live as if God doesn't exist. The righteous live as if God is the strength and the shield, the protection, because He is. David's confident in God's strength and His protection and spurs him to greater confidence. And that causes him to praise God. The second part of verse 7, Therefore my heart exalts. This uh, phrase, heart exalts, is the idea of, of jumping for joy. That my heart takes joy in my God. Can you consider this? Where David is right now? With enemies attacking, with, with seemingly 
no end in sight. He says, my heart takes joy in God. My heart exalts. And I would suggest to you that this kind of response can only be generated by God. That a believer in the midst of clear opposition among his enemies is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That, that a believer can have joy in the midst of opposition. Now that joy may not be expressed in, in a huge smile and lots of laughter. right? He's, he's being opposed. But it's just like Paul calls it, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That, that while there may be a look of consternation and, and frustration and, and maybe even distress, there's also great hope and confidence because of what, what God will do. The last part of verse 7, David reflects on God's character and, and wants to give praise to God. He says, and with my song I shall thank Him. This goes along with what I was saying last Thursday, that even in the midst of difficulty and opposing forces, that the believer doesn't throw in the towel. Instead, he gives thanks in everything. How can a believer do that? How can he give thanks even when he's being opposed by God's enemies? And the answer is that, that he knows what it is that God desires. And God desires that we be people who are thankful always. Why can we be thankful because we know that God sovereignly controls all things, that, that even the sinful acts of the wicked against us are controlled by God's sovereign hand. That God knows what's going on. And He's using those circumstances, even opposing circumstances, to bring about His purposes, which brings, those purposes include bringing glory to His name and bringing good to us, according to Romans 8.28. And that good to us may not come in the form of the difficulty being removed or us making it through the trial immediately. It, it may last our whole life, right? Or we may just keep walking through it for a long period of time before God finally pulls us out. But, but what we do know is that during that time, God always uses it for our good, which means the conformity of us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so that's something to be thankful for. That even in the midst of darkness that's all around, we can be thankful. And here, David can do it in the form of a song. This reminds me of Paul and Silas when they're in prison. That you would expect that they would be, you know, kind of clanging their cups against the bars of the jail and saying, no, nobody knows the trouble I've seen type thing. But instead, they're singing praises to God. They're singing hymns. Why? Because they can recognize that God still controls even them being in that prison. And you know God used them in that situation. Not only did He rescue them from that, but He, he used them to reach the, the jailer. So here's the point. We may lack immediate peace, right? The great conflict is still there. It's still pressing on us. But here's the reason we can be thankful. The immediate peace is, is not there. Right? Like still waters. But the ultimate peace is always there. And this ultimate peace is, I know that God is in control. That He is my strength and my protection. And that He has provided for me all the way. And this thanksgiving results from knowing that God 
is a saving defense. God is a saving defense. Verse 8. The Lord is their strength. Now he turns from talking about himself. That is, David's speaking about himself in prayer. Completely appropriate to pray for yourself. But, but here he, he moves to start to pray for the people of Israel. The Lord is their strength. He's confident that God will strengthen the people and that he's a saving defense to his anointed. This phrase, his anointed, is the word um, that's translated as Messiah. And it doesn't mean, it's not talking about Jesus, the Christ. Here it's talking about God's chosen people, His chosen one, the the people of Israel, that is. And so what David's doing is he's expanding his view. He's, He's thinking about himself to begin with, saying, God, my enemies are all around me. They're pressing in, and I trust you, and I give thanks to you, and I praise you. My heart leaps for joy because you're in control of the situation. And then he telescopes out here to the rest of the people and says, God, you are their strength. You are their saving defense too. You're not just mine. You're not just the God of me. You're the God of your people. So, number one, believers depend on God to rescue them from the same judgment as the wicked. They trust that God will favorably respond. And then thirdly, they pray for continued blessing. Verse 9, they pray for continued blessing. While David is sure that God hears him now, as I'm suggesting here from verse 6, and while he is sure that, that God will respond by bringing judgment on the wicked now, he also recognizes that, that the threat of evil is not over. And so he prays for future blessing and protection from evil. So he's saying the evil's here, it's pressing in. God, you're hearing me, you're going to... You're going to get us through this somehow, but here's what I know. Even when you get me out of that, I know there's going to be more evil. There's going to be more things that, that, that approach and attack. And so what he's praying for is future blessing and future protection from evil. Do you see that in verse 9? Save your people or rescue them. That's the idea. Not This isn't talking about saving faith here. But rescue your people from danger, that is. And bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. So God, even though there's going to be evil all around. There's going to be wicked people that are constantly attacking. Do you know what brings me great joy and confidence? And do you know what I pray for? David's saying, I just pray that you'll be with us the whole way. Be our shepherd and carry us. Notice the last word, forever. David knew very well the, the metaphor of the shepherd, that is God being the shepherd. He's saying, lead and care for your people like the good shepherd that you are. In Psalm 23, we saw that the shepherd was the one who was both a protector and a provider of his sheep, right? He led his sheep to nourishment, refreshment by still water so that they could drink from it and also have healing for their wounds. And then he guided them through difficult paths, right? Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because you are with us, God. That's what a shepherd does. He leads his sheep where they need to go. And the main thing that a shepherd does is that he stays with them forever. Notice that last phrase in verse 9. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. We could say it this way. Be their shepherd forever. So don't abandon them. Always serve as their protector and provider, God. And that's David's prayer for the people. So in this lament, we have David just expressing his heart, his grief to God. 
turning in praise, thanksgiving, joy, praying for the people, praying for himself, for future wickedness and evil that may attack. And he asked that God would protect him forever. Friends, God is faithful. He will bring the wicked to justice. And our prayer should be when we are being attacked that God would bring justice to them while at the same time not lumping us in with them as they get the judgment that they deserve. And the reason for their judgment is because they are wicked people committing wicked deeds from wicked hearts that disregard God and the works of God. They live by a secular worldview as if God doesn't exist. So when the wicked are sealing their own fate, believers can confidently pray to God for protection from the same destiny. Let me give you uh, four points of application here. Number one, learn how to pray rightly for the wicked. Learn how to pray rightly for the wicked. Taking out vengeance on the wicked is God's business. Okay, so your job is not to, you know, as you're being attacked, just take it back out on them. I'm going to make sure that they feel what I felt, right? They did something to my wife, my family. I'm going to make sure this happens to them. That's not our job. Our job is not vengeance. What does the Scripture say? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's God's job to take out vengeance. Our job is to pray for vengeance. Okay? Our job is, yes, to love our enemies and and to pray for them and to bless them but also to pray for their judgment. And now you might be thinking, well, why should I pray for their judgment? That seems very unloving. But if you think about it, that's exactly what you do every time that you pray for Jesus to come quickly. If Jesus comes quickly, what does that mean for the unrighteous? What does that mean for the wicked? If Jesus comes quickly, it means judgment is coming on this earth and all who oppose Him will be judged. So in that sense... You are praying, and I would say rightfully so, for the judgment of the wicked. You want to see justice happen. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. What you're praying for is for Christ to come down and establish His kingdom. And if Christ is going to establish His kingdom, He first has to come as judge. He comes with a sword, doesn't He? Riding on a horse, not on a donkey this time. Donkey is a symbol of peace, right? When the king would ride through the town on, on a donkey, it would be a sign that everything's good, everything's safe. This is what Solomon would often do. But when a king came riding on a horse, that means he's ready for battle. That's exactly what Jesus will do prior to the kingdom. And so when you pray that way, in a general sense, whether you realize it or not, you're actually praying for judgment to come first. So learn how to rightly pray for the wicked. That doesn't mean you... you you desire evil for people and, and desire the worst fate for people who cause you trouble. But, but, it, but there is a right way to do it. And we should learn from, I think, we should learn from the psalmists as they do it. That is, they do it with God's view in mind, that God's purpose is in mind. Obviously, our, our desire for them is that they follow the same path that we do, that they, in mercy, turn in repentance that, that is based on the mercy of God, that they turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. But, but there is an appropriate way to pray for the wicked. And so how to do that exactly is difficult. Um, I, I, try to, 
I, I don't try to pray specifically for individual people that judgment would come on them. But I do pray generally, you know, that the wicked would be judged in your time. That God, you would bring justice because that's what we're looking for when, when everything on this earth is right as it should be. Because right now, many of the wrongs in the world are, appear as right or are called right by people. And many of the rights in this world are called wrong. And God, you will come and, and we long for that day when you come and you restore all that. And every, everything is right. It's restored. And so that's probably the, the safest way to do that while at the same time trying to um, uh, avoid personal vengeance against people. Number two, in the midst of persecution, have confidence in God. Or we could just say it this way, trust in God. David could say in verse 6, Blessed be the Lord, or praise be to the Lord, because he is my strength and shield. Can you praise the Lord and rely on him as your strength and shield in times of trouble? Or in those times of persecution, do you blame him and lose trust in him? And the only way that you're going to reverse that is if you reflect on God's works. That's what David does here in verse 7. The Lord is my strength and shield. This is how I know, God, that you are trustworthy because I have seen you work before. I have seen you in the Scriptures. I've seen you in my own life. So recall the works of the Lord. One of the ways that God has encouraged me and caused me to trust in Him despite this recent attack on our church is to remind me that, that the life of a servant of Jesus Christ is a life of a spiritual soldier. Now, certainly it's true that there will be times of relative and apparent peace, right? Just think about the, the idea of a person in a battalion. There will be times where, you know, he's walking from one battle to the next. But, you know, his main job is not to be in that walking phase. What's his main job? It's to fight. And as Christians, I think we tend to be surprised at battles. We expect the whole life to be that walking period, right? The conflict-free living. But do you know what Jesus taught us? That the life of a Christian is about fighting battles. That's the main component of it. It's about fighting battles on behalf of God. This is why we're here. This is why Jesus said, don't be surprised when persecution, when persecution comes. Why? Because if they persecuted me, if they battled against me, then they're going to battle against you. And the apostles said that it is much, with much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. Do you really think that, that you, as a soldier in God's army, will be carried to the clouds on flowery beds of ease? Because that is not what you signed up for. So even in the midst of persecution, we can have confidence in God saying, God, yes, this is good and right because you are in control. And you know what's best. So I'm going to fight this battle. And I trust you. I trust that you hear me. I trust that you're going to bring out your best in this situation. And I trust your word. So I'm going to, to, to do it your way. We can have confidence in the midst of persecution. 
Thirdly, in the midst of persecution, we should have joy in God. Can you say with David in verse 7 that your heart exalts in the midst of persecution? Does your heart jump for joy? That's the idea there, despite the persecution that you face. Or the opposite of joy is, is hopelessness. That is, there's no hope in any of this. There's nothing that God can do in this situation, in, in this specific conflict. There is nothing that God can do that would be good for me and good for His glory. That's the opposite of joy. But if you recognize that despite the conflict and the lack of immediate peace, right, Just if we just talk about our little circle around us, that God is doing something good and right and best for us and for Him, that's joy in the midst of conflict. Sorrowful, yet always joyful. And then thirdly, can you be thankful to God in the midst of persecution? Can you give thanks even in the midst of your ongoing battle against the wicked? This is God's will in Christ Jesus that you give thanks. First Thessalonians 5:17 and 18. So pray to God for the protection from the fate of the wicked. Rely on Him to be your shepherd and find joy and reason to be thankful despite your setbacks. God knows your needs. He cares for your needs. He wants to come to your aid. He is your loving commander. And He wants to come to your aid. So call to Him. He will not be deaf to your cry for help. All right. Any questions or comments?